All right, all right, right. Great to see you all. Uh, thanks for not getting uh, hurricane fatigue. Uh, you know, I don't know how we all process the hurricane, but one of the things which, uh, uh, you know, we all have a different perspective of how we process these major events, but from one perspective, the huge blessing of America is just the size of the country. You know, so here we are in New England, we're just having great weather, you know, the uh, the hurricanes are just something we're watching on TV. We all got connections down in Florida, uh, you know, some of you personally, uh, we've had many vineyard folks uh, move down there. Uh, but, you know, one of the blessings of America is just the sheer size of the country, that we can be sitting really unaffected while other people are in major trauma uh, down in Florida or in, in Houston. The other thing that uh, was just going through my mind as I'm trying to process this personally is, you know, the TV cameras are quick to be there when the disaster strikes, but even now, it's, it, it, you know, it's sort of off the news, and, uh, and yet, for most people, the reality is, okay, where am I going to send my kids to school? Uh, what does life even look like uh, getting back into my community? It, you know, am I going to be able to rebuild? I mean, you're talking about major trauma, which takes uh, more than just a week or two weeks to overcome. This is something which is going to impact people for, for, for years. And so the, the next step of the equation is, okay, so what do we do about it? And uh, again, I think the silent... Uh, helper is often the church. Um, you know, many organizations will get like a big, you know, if you're a football player, you donate some money, they get a lot of publicity, and then it's done. Or some will do some work here and there. But uh, the silent partners, the silent workers that are doing it without any sort of fanfare, and often the news media delights in just ignoring it, uh, is the church. And it's an ongoing, long-term challenge that we face and 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 you know i'm just so proud of us as a church that you know we would step up and give money to convoy of hope and uh even that we can partner with an organization uh with like convoy of hope and what i so like about it you know as a vineyard there's two pedals we like to push one is uh social justice and one is spreading the gospel of good news of jesus and for some folks it's a either or but for us it's both and and with Convoy of Hope, we have this hands-on thing. We can give money, but we can also go personally and just go and serve and help. Now, again, if you want to go down there, some of you have gone in previous uh, disasters. Uh, it's helpful if you kind of have a military mindset. It's hurry up and wait. You know, you, you can't sort of say, okay, I'm going to go down and help in this uh, relief effort. Uh, what hotel I'm going to stay in? Are you going to pick me up at the airport? And what meals are going to be eating? If you've got that mindset, just like it's not going to work. I mean, if you, you sort of pack your own stuff and you get down there. And uh, we've helped out, I've helped out personally with the Convoy of Hope. And it is a fantastic organization. I mean, they just uh, highly uh, faith-based, uh, great roots with the vineyard. Uh, they've got all these trucks that are, you know, 18-wheelers. They show up in the town. They get the word out. It's not just giving them groceries. It's groceries plus clothes, plus prayer, plus, you know, how do we follow up with you? It's pretty impressive. But uh, the, the uh, USA Today had an interesting uh, article on this uh, idea 
where a, a journalist called Paul Singer wrote this for the USA Today. He said, if you donate bottles of water, diapers, clothing, or other materials to hurricane victims in Texas or Florida, your donation will likely pass through the hands of the Seventh-day Adventists. Now, who would have known that? I mean, it's like, what? Who are the Seventh-day Adventists? Uh, I mean, here's a Christian organization, a Christian group, and, uh, well, let me just read the rest of this thing. Who knew? And Singer continues, the Advents, Adventists, over several decades, have established a unique exper expertise in, di in disaster warehousing, collecting, logging, organizing, and distributing relief supplies in cooperation with government disaster response agencies. Then Singer continues to uh, write this. He says, The convoy of hope and Samaritan's purse, uh, while clarifying these groups don't merely supplement government relief efforts, in many instances they are the government's response. You know, so we live in a day where um, there's a lot of tension, uh, where not everybody's excited about faith in Jesus, and uh, in our political environments, there's uh, you know somewhat of a uh, a wave where where politicians are saying we need to get Christians out of uh, government, or uh, if you're going to run for office, uh, please don't express your your Christian views, uh, especially if you're a judge. Uh, you know we prefer in many circles uh, to have people that aren't believers. And, uh, you know, if you're going to be a, a person of faith, just do it in your church. Don't mention it in your schools, in your community. Uh, just do it privately. Uh, faith is a private thing. And there's a movement, uh, unfortunately, afoot in our country where this is the sort of popular mindset. And what I am saying is we have to resist that in every front because to be a follower of Christ is a sense of saying, okay, we love people, whether people agree with us, believe what we believe or don't believe. There's a sense where we are pushing our pedal on the social justice uh, gas pedal. We're saying we want to help people. We want to help Americans. We want to help uh, our nation. We want to be good citizens. And we want to do it in love and with the good news of Christ. Our motivation is the good news of Christ. There's something in us which is saying that's a motivating factor. Now, for others, their motivating factor, if you're not religious, you might say, look, I'm, I'm all for caring for people. I'm, I'm all for social justice. My motivating factor is just that. Fine, we can work together. There's obviously mutual uh, interest. Your, your motivating factor might be patriotism or it might be whatever. But for us as a church, our motivating factor really is saying, look, we've received the love of Christ. We've experienced God's goodness. And we are compassionate and caring for other people in society. We're compassionate for Christians. We're compassionate for non-Christians. We're even compassionate for people that vehemently disagree with us. But our attitude and our response should be one of compassion. Uh, having said all that, you know, when we become excited about something, um, maybe it's music for you or uh, you know, maybe you're some sort of athlete, or maybe you like computer games, or maybe it's soccer. But when you get like super excited about the thing that you're passionate about, typically what happens is this, is your energy just 
like rises up when you think about that thing. It might be, you know, worship. It might be, like I say, playing a guitar. And your, your whole thing just becomes focused on that. And, uh, the, the, you know, the hours just sort of drip by as you're just pressing into the thing that you're passionate about. It's a natural, normal response. And by definition, uh, if you're focusing and passionate on whatever the thing is that you're passionate about, other things just seem to fall away. Like the days just go by and the hours just drift by. I mean, you know, parents would be uh, frustrated when their kids get engrossed in a computer game and it's like all they do for days or hours or all night. Or, uh, but it might be any other thing that you're like totally passionate about. Uh, time just goes by. Now, here's the other thing that seems to happen. If you're passionate about whatever it is that you're passionate about, you will typically gather other people that have an equal an interest in the thing that you're passionate about. Uh, you know, it might be hunting. Uh, if you're passionate about hunting, sooner or later, others will gather that you like hunting and, you know, you'll start your own little group or whatever it is. You might be like, you know, being a farmer on a small scale, just you're a homeowner and you want to grow your own veggie patch and the next minute you connect with a whole bunch of other guys and your veggie patch is like expanding and expanding and it's more like comprehensive and it's awesome and everybody else that thinks in a similar mindset is doing the same thing and, and that's a normal response when you're passionate about things that you gather other people that are equally passionate about the very thing that you're passionate about but it also has another, maybe it's a downside is that people that aren't passionate about that sometimes feel rejected. They just like, okay, uh, I'm trying to relate to you, and all you're talking about is gardening, and I, you know, I want to talk about cycling, and, and all you talk about is gardening, so let me go find somebody that's passionate about the thing I'm passionate about. All that is say is this. How do we find, uh, where do we find role models of people that are passionate about Jesus in a way that's very winsome? You know, it's like, they got something which I can't quite get where faith is a big deal and it really seems to make a big impact in their life and it's really, really winsome. There's something really appealing about that. And you will find that if you have any interest in faith, people like that become magnetic. You, you, you just like want to be with them. And people, if you have an interest in faith, uh, if you find people that are really just hostile towards faith, I mean, it's just, it's hard. You like, go to do everything you can and just be around people that are just hostile towards faith because uh, that's not your, you know, that's not your interest. Your interest is, I want to know more about faith. I want to know more about, uh, about Jesus. And when you're passionate about things, I mean, either write a book about it or you start a small group or you gather other people around you, but you become so focused on the thing that you're passionate about. And uh, today, I, I want to look at uh, John the Baptist. We're doing a series called Radical Love and Radical Results. Uh, and I, I want to do this study through the book of uh, the beginning part of the book of the Gospel of John. But uh, John the Baptist is one of these remarkable characters where, you know, I don't know how much you know about John the Baptist, but even if you just got a uh, a rudimentary understanding of John the Baptist, the one thing you're going to know is like this guy was radical. I mean, like this guy really pressed in heavily to the things of God. Uh, and, uh, and in an interesting way, he was winsome. I mean, he was weird, but he was winsome. There was something like people were flocking to him. Uh, so, 
You know, the other part of this passion that, that I think is hard to describe, like if I describe, how do we get faith? How do we become people of faith, or should I say passionate about faith? It's sort of similar to saying, how do we get to become really uh, in love? And you start describing, well, okay, here's a formula for how you should love somebody. And it's like, no, you can't write a formula. I mean, it's like, you know when you love somebody. You, you, you just, you consume by it. It's all you want to talk about or you want to talk to them about. And, and you just, there's, there's a sense of, okay, it's squishy. I can't define it, but we all know when you're in love and you all know when somebody else is in love. Similarly with faith, sometimes it's hard to define, but you really know when somebody's passionate about Jesus and that's their faith. But how do we get it? And defining it is a little... Uh, a little squishy. So uh, I want us to look at John the Baptist and say, okay, what is it that he has that we really want? Or how can we uh, learn from what he's trying to tell us uh, about Jesus that's inspiring for us, that lifts us up? And uh, today, I, I would just, you know, out of this message, if we could walk away somehow with an increased level of faith, but not just a flat faith, a sense of a love for Jesus, but I'm going to say this several times over the next month because I think this is really, really fundamental. Our love for God or for Jesus needs to start with receiving His love. If we can't receive His love, the rest is kind of like a mute point. The problem with it is it's so hard to explain and define you know, other than a one-line sentence, okay, we need to receive God's love. We can talk for a long time about responding to God's love and obeying God and blah, blah, blah. That we can do at length. But if we miss this big point, that we need to first, we need to first, we need to first receive and experience God's love. And it's out of that, and only out of that, that we then do the things that we do. If you miss that point, we miss everything. But if we get that point, it's like I don't even have to make the point because you will just do all the things that people do that are in love or have received and experienced God's love. It's, for each one of us, that expression of that will look totally different. So uh, in Second Peter, it says this. Second Peter 1.1, 1, 1, it's the first uh, verse in Second in, in Peter. It says, this faith was given to you because of justice and fairness of Jesus. Okay, this faith was given to you. Now, we've got to hold on to this idea. It's not we earn this faith. It's not that we intellectually go through steps to understand it. It is this faith was given to you. This is something that God gives us. And for those of you that you're high in faith, you know, you, you, you don't deserve it. You got it because God gave it to you. So Lord Jesus, I just pray uh, today that you would give us all, this fall, an increased level of faith, an increase of receiving your love and being loved by you, and just this desire, Lord, to experience your radical love. And Lord, then we just leave the results to you because we know they're going to be radical results when you change our lives. 
I just lift up this morning's sermon, Lord. I just pray for my message, that you would put power on your words. Uh, in your name, Jesus. Amen. Uh, reading from uh, John, if you've got uh, an, a an app on your phone or you want to follow on the screen, uh, John chapter 3, verse uh, 22 through 36. I want to read this and uh, work through this little section here. There's a lot going on. And uh, I, I think we can learn a lot from this. It says this, <clears throat> Then Jesus and his disciples left Jerusalem and went into the Judean countryside. Jesus spent some time there with them, baptizing people. Okay, just pause for a second. This is kind of a weird thing. Uh, this is early on in Jesus' ministry. He's out in the wilderness and he's baptizing people. Now, of course, when we look at baptism now, we've got a whole understanding of it but pause to think like what was jesus telling the people that he is baptizing that was going on i mean this is like early days in jesus ministry this is the gospel of john chapter three this is before jesus done like everything uh you know he's kind of revealed himself a little bit uh and he's baptizing people uh, was he saying to them look I'm baptizing you because you need to believe in me because I'm the Messiah, I'm the Son of God. Uh, you know, I don't think they had a complete knowledge of who Jesus was at this point. But Jesus was still baptizing people as his disciples as much as that culture in that day were doing baptisms in that way. In other words, if you were following a great leader, typically their custom would be, well, you need to be baptized and be my follower. And, and people were doing that. So people being baptized and following Jesus kind of figured out there's something phenomenal about this guy, but I don't think they have a complete understanding of what it means uh, to be baptized by Jesus. But John the Baptist uh, was a little different. He says here, at that time, John the Baptist was baptizing uh, as well in Aeon near Salem because there, were, there was plenty of water there. And people kept coming to him for baptism. This was before John was thrown into prison. A debate broke out between John's disciple and a certain Jew over ceremonial cleansing. So John's disciples came to him and said, hey, listen. Now, again, there's just a lot of things happening here. But here's the classic thing. You start baptizing like we do today. And people, you know, got whole different viewpoints and what baptism means and how you should do it, infant, adult, you know, what age you should be baptized and who, and who makes the decision, is it the pastor, is it the parent, is it the, you know, children's ministry person, the youth pastor, whatever. Uh, but here there's a debate is breaking out and here's the, the shakeout. Uh, we know from the Qumran uh, scrolls that we've this, uh, found somewhat recently uh, that there was this community of people that were pretty ticked off with the leading priests and the way the temple system was working. They saw the temple system being corrupt, which it was. And they saw the priests being corrupt, which they were. And so they said, look, we need to withdraw from this religious community because the religious community, the Jewish community, has become so corrupt, we're going to head for the hills and we're going to start our own community, which they did, and we're going to be really, really strict followers of God. We're going to do it the right way. And uh, so this person comes along and he says, okay, uh, Jesus is baptizing. Uh, I, you know, the religious person questions says, okay, John the Baptist is baptizing. What is exactly going on here? And for the Qurum community, 
they were saying, you need to get baptized to cleanse yourself so that you're right with God. It's a purification ritual. And so the question is now, is it a debate? You know, like, okay, John, are you doing it right? Is Jesus doing it right? And very quickly, it actually moves into uh, a very common problem we all have, which is really one of jealousy. Let me just read it to you. So John's disciple came to him and said, Rabbi, the man you met the other side of the Jordan, the one you identified as the Messiah, is also baptizing people, and everybody is going to him instead of coming to us. This is a total, natural, human instinct. Right? It's like crowd. You want the biggest crowd, we want the biggest church, we want the biggest company, we want to make the most, we want to be the most, we want to be the greatest, we want to be the winning soccer team, we want to be, you know, we want to be it. Uh, it's a whole different spirit or a different attitude uh, for someone to say, you know, I really want the opposing soccer team or football team to do really well. Uh, you know, I want our competitors to really exceed. I want to express love. And in this particular case, John the Baptist uh, just nails it. And he does something which is so counter-cultural even in this day. It's so against our, our human nature. And, and John the Baptist says this, No one can receive anything unless God gives it from heaven. You yourselves know how plainly I told you, I am not the Messiah. I am only here to prepare the way for him. It is the bridegroom, and this is just an unbelievable analogy. I mean, this is just a really terrific analogy. It is the bridegroom who marries the bride. And the bridegroom's friend is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. Therefore, I am filled with joy at his success. He must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. There is something that John is getting at here that he can experience incredible joy, and it's got nothing to do with him. He's getting incredibly joyful because he's seeing Jesus be magnified and lifted up. And in one way, shape, or another, this applies to all of us today. When we can be part of or witness uh, Jesus being magnified, lifted up, be glorified, it brings us great joy. And one of the big pitfalls we have is when we need to receive the joy or the focus or the praise or whatever that really is due to, to Jesus. I mean, John the Baptist is nailing something here in very few words that is super profound and extremely helpful for us today. If we can get this, I mean, we get like the whole gospel message. It, it is really a, a great summary. And then in verse 31, he starts making this unbelievably powerful theological statement about God that in a, just a few verses, if we can comprehend what he's saying here, we've got like the whole package. I mean, this is just John the Baptist. You know, how did he know this stuff? How did he experience this? What? Anyway, let me just read what he says. He says, He has come from above and is greater than anyone else. We are of the earth. We speak of earthly things. But he has come from heaven and is greater than anyone else. He testifies about what he has seen and heard. But how few believe what he tells them. I mean, this is exactly our challenge today. How few believe in Jesus? 
you know, we can tell them all these things. Jesus is coming, and John the Baptist is saying, like, he's seen God, he's been in heaven, and he's heard. And yet, as Jesus is talking to people, very few are believing Jesus, which should encourage you and I when we battle. But it says in 33, anyone who accepts his testimony can affirm that God is true, for he, sent, he was sent by God. He speaks God's words, for God gives him the spirit without limit. The father loves his son and has put everything into his hands. And anyone who believes in God's son has eternal life. Anyone who doesn't obey the Son will never experience eternal life, but remains under God's angry judgment. I mean, John the Baptist is nailing it. He nails exactly who God is, exactly who Jesus is, the need for the Holy Spirit, the fact that we need to obey Jesus and receive Christ, uh, and you receive Him first, but that's not the end point. The end point is obeying Christ. But we don't obey Christ, and we don't obey this, this walk unless we've experienced and received God's love. It's out of receiving his love that we then want to obey God, uh, and it's powerful. It's a powerful, powerful message. John the Baptist, you know, when you reflect and think, well, okay, John, how did you, like, come up with all this stuff? How did you uh, figure out Jesus? Uh, and as, we, as I've said so often in church, a walk of faith is not like going to university. It's not like, okay, let me study all these facts and get to know all the facts, but it's such an American way of approaching every subject, including God and faith. We say we've got to know the Bible, and we do need to know the Bible. But what we disconnect is relationship with the God of the Bible, particularly the activity of the Holy Spirit. And we, we sort of narrow it down to all intellectual head knowledge, and then we think, okay, we're done. And yet what we're missing is the love of God, experiencing that love, allowing that love to transform us, and because we transform by that love, we then de delight to obey God. Uh, and when we obey God, it, you know, we just want to do the things that God asks us to do. But John the Baptist, I mean, he must have heard stories growing up. He was like, okay, John, uh, you know, uh, you're a miracle baby. Uh, some of you folks have had miracle babies where you couldn't get pregnant, and you prayed and prayed, and you begged God, and some of you... Uh, God didn't answer you, and for others of you, God has answered you in miraculous ways. And Zechariah and Elizabeth, you know, they were old. They couldn't have kids, and, and God miraculously allows them to, to, to get pregnant. And so, no doubt, John the Baptist was told this by his parents. And, you know, how weird would it be to be Jesus' cousin? You know, I mean, it's like, okay, John, the you Jesus' cousin. I mean, like, this is like, you know, this is a different kind of a relationship. And, you know, when you realize your cousin is the Messiah, I mean, it's like, whoa, okay. I mean, he might be a good, you know, football player or a good athlete or great, you know, at school, but the Messiah, that's like a whole nother level of, this is my family, you know, it's like... I mean, John the Baptist must have been struggling. And we see when we look at John the Baptist's life, there's times where he's just like profoundly full of faith, like here. And there's other times he's like, he's questioning. He's like, you know, just, I'm battling. And then how weird would it be if you are the person that says, you know what, I'm the one which is fulfilling a pro prophecy made by Isaiah 700 years ago, and it's me, John the Baptist, 
that actually that person, I'm going to be the one in the wilderness, I'm going to be the one preparing the way for the Messiah. I mean, that's kind of, this is kind of an interesting story, to say the least. I'll tell you what's also interesting. This story is not just in the Bible. This story is also in the Quran. The Quran states that Zechariah uh, was old and could not have a kid, and that by the mercy of God, God gave them a kid. I mean, miraculously. The Quran is like, there's no... God miraculously gave uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth a kid. And here's the other thing the Quran says, which sort of totally goes in with what our Bible story is. Zechariah and Elizabeth's parents, were, they were from a long line of priests. And if you're a priest, your kids are priests. But Zechariah and Elizabeth, there's a change. Their kid, John the Baptist, is a prophet. No longer a priest. He's now a prophet and he's in the school of prophets. And the Quran also attests to that. They said, Zechariah, in fact, the book in the Quran is the, about the prophets, and of which John the Baptist is a prophet. You know, the testimony of who Jesus is and what John the Baptist is representing is really, really uh, quite extraordinary, to say the least. And John's timing, I mean, we all battle with timing. But you hear God and say, okay, now's the time when I'm going to go out and prepare the way for Jesus. How do we nail timing down? Or how do we even nail down faith? I mean, faith, what I'm talking about, is John the Baptist's ability to say, I'm going to respond. I'm going to actually do something about what I believe. And that's the part of faith which really intrigues me. It's that separation from saying, I've got the knowledge, I understand it, I understand Jesus, I understand He died on the cross for me, but now I'm going to take that and I'm going to live it out. That is a whole different deal. There's not a lot of Christians sitting in a lot of American churches which are really passionate about living out their faith in Jesus. There's a lot of people that have an intellectual knowledge and, you know, that's where it ends. But when we're passionate about God, when we have a relationship with God, when God is pushing in and touching us, we have a huge desire to then want to live it out. It's almost like you can't stop it. It's like if you're passionate about music and you're like a guitar player, you know, you're going to like sneak out somewhere and sort of play the guitar and every time you've got a, a few minutes, you're going to be playing it and, you know, it doesn't matter how many times your parents tell you you've got to do homework and you've got to do something else, you'll be like, you a new rift and listening to you download another tune. It's like, you don't need motivation to get going. You're like self-motivated. It's like, just give me an hour, give me a half an hour, give me 10 minutes, I'm, I'm into my passion. Similarly, with people that are followers of Jesus, you don't need motivation uh, to like want to connect with God. It's like, just give me some time, give me some space. I, I, I want to live this life out. Let me end uh, with looking at the bulletin insert and, and quickly looking at uh, this idea of how do we grow in faith? How do we get the squishy concept of faith? And, and how do we experience this love of God? How do, we, you know, how do we make this practical? The first question I want to ask ourselves, have you ever overestimated your ability to produce results? I mean, have you ever overestimated, like you just really think you're too great? You know, you really think you're better than you are, you can do more than you are, you can, you know, and... At the same time, ask yourself the opposite question. Have you ever underestimated God's incredible ability to produce really great results 
through you. You know, my, my tendency, my experience as a pastor is people think that they are way greater than they really are, and they minimize God's incredible greatness and what God can do through them. And I think there's something that we need to uh, get here from John the Baptist's profound statement in verse 27. No one can receive anything unless God gives it from heaven. This should be extremely freeing for all of you folks that aren't above average. You know, there's sort of this mindset that we all live in a society where everybody in our town is above average, and we're all above average academically, and we're above average sports, and we're above average music, we're above average in everything. But when you're not above average, when you're the one that's not above average, it hurts. And it's extremely uh, helpful to know that it's not up to you, it's up to God. Uh, you know, you can't do anything, you aren't gifted, you aren't that smart unless God gave it to you. And on the other hand, if God didn't give it to you, you can derive a huge amount of satisfaction and joy knowing that God has something for you and He loves you and you're not a loser. God's got a great plan for you with your limited uh, academics or with your limited sporting ability or with your limited whatever or not. God has a great plan for your life and it can be a great life. Uh, it's very freeing. We don't have to get uh, worry about jealousy uh, we can just give it to God. God, it's up to you. It's not up to me. I kind of battle with this one. Many of you are teachers. I was sitting on uh, catching a boat ride back from the Boston Harbor Islands uh, in the summer, and uh, I was over listening to somebody sitting behind me, and it was a teacher, and she was an Olympic swimmer. Uh, so she, uh, as I'm over listening to this conversation, I was like really interested in this conversation. I was leaning in a lot more than I should have been. But uh, she was a white lady, and she was talking to two uh, black kids from, from Dorchester, Roxbury. And the two black kids uh, were pretty chubby and overweight, and uh, they were accompanied not by her parents, but by somebody else that was sort of there. And uh, somehow the, the, the teacher was trying to encourage the, these, these, these kids, and uh, doing what I've heard many, many times in in, you know, uh, speeches at university or teachers are saying, which is basically saying to the kids, you can be anything you want to be. You want to be an Olympic swimmer, you can be an Olympic swimmer. And at this point, I'm just like, man, I'm just like, really? I mean, I'm like, I mean, if that one phrase like sets me off, it's like, that is the biggest lot of baloney in the world. Now, I understand the motive for it. Is you're trying to like uplift this kid or up or help somebody and give them hope. But I'm thinking, are you kidding me? These chubby kids, I mean, the, the kids are trying to tell us, they're trying to tell this lady, we maybe can make it to the Y, you know, like once in the summer, and even then, it's, and they're telling all the logistical efforts, and this Olympic swimmer is telling you, oh, don't worry about it, you, know, you just get the Y every day, you train every day, if you train hard, you can be an Olympic athlete like me. I'm like, there's no way, you've got to have like an unbelievable body just to be an Olympic athlete. I mean, and that's God-given. No amount of training will get you there. And you've got to come from a certain socioeconomic whatever, you know, to be there. I mean, if you're going to be a great swimmer and you live in New England, you've got to come from money. You don't just like join the Westboro Tennis and Swim Club, you know, when you don't have any money. I mean, it's like a thousand bucks a month for crying out loud. You're not going to be a great swimmer unless you've got money. You're just like, oh, oh, you can try and swim in the Hopkins State Park in the ice. I mean, I don't know, but you're not going to be an Olympian. So, uh, you know, I'm thinking, no, no, you know, 
unless God has given it to us from heaven, can we appreciate that not everybody is going to be you know, above average and extraordinary? We can be extremely content. We can have a great life being uh, you know, under extraordinary, just being like less than you know, phenomenal. Second point I want to make quickly here is, uh, are you self-centered or are you Jesus-centric? And then, really? You know, John's statement here in 329, I am filled with joy at his success. Boy, can we be filled with joy when other people succeed? And this is where moms often, dads too, but moms really excel. When their kids like are successful, Moms are just like so proud, oh, it's my kid, until everybody about me showing the photographs, you know, my kid, my kid. I mean, it's a phenomenal thing because now all of a sudden there's a natural thing of saying, I want to see other people excel other than myself. And, uh, you know, we can develop that attitude in a lot of things. The third point as a closing up here is this idea of this crazy love. John 3.35, the father loves his son and has put everything into his hands. I mean, there's this crazy concept that there's this trickle-down effect. God loved Jesus. He put everything to his hands. Jesus and God the Father gave us the Holy Spirit and put it in our hands. And we can receive this crazy love by being receptive to it and asking God for it. It's, it really is crazy. And it's really awesome. And there should be part of us which uh, desires this. So let me just conclude this way, summarizing what I said at the beginning. It's not a works mindset. It's not like I need to do more for Jesus. I need to give money to Convoy of Hope. I need to, like, you know, because of guilt or out of whatever. It's a total response to the love of God working in us. It's the exact opposite. There's something in us which is saying, geez, how, how do I help out? How do I, where, where's a place for me? I, I, I need to find, I want to help. I want to be, you know, there's some, it's a response in us. Which, uh, which we need to overcome. If you're fighting this mindset, I need to pray more, I need to read my Bible more, I need to have more devotions, I need to, I need to, you're like, stop that tape. It's like, you don't need to do anything. You need to, like, receive God's love. That, you need, that's what you need to do. You, you need to receive more of God. Jesus died on the cross. He did it all. There's nothing you can do. You can only receive. You can, you can believe and you can receive. And once you've received, you've got to respond. And you need the Holy Spirit to do that. That's the message. I mean, John the, God, John the Baptist was an unbelievable model for us to, to do it Jesus God's way. I mean, the most unlikely person, most non-seeker-sensitive character in the Bible. You know, he wasn't downtown Jerusalem. He's out in the boonies somewhere. And the crowds are flocking to him. And it wasn't because his clothes were that great. And it wasn't because, you know, he was eating at the fanciest restaurant. No, none of those things. When God is in you, you become magnetic. You become joyful. People like you. You become attractive. And there is something which is awesome when we're filled with God's love. Our desire should be like, God, I need more of you. I want more of your Holy Spirit. Fill me again afresh. I know I've made all these mistakes, but you love me. Fill me. That is a, a great Christian response, and we're going to give a chance uh, at the end to, to respond to that. But why don't we have the uh, worship team uh, come on up? I think the only insane thing is to remain the same. I mean, it's insane to remain the same. Just like the, the same thing to do is to say, I want more of you, God. I want more of you, Jesus. I know this might be uncomfortable. I know I'm pressing into something 
that might be pushing my buttons, but I want more of you. Why don't you stand and let's uh, worship the Lord. And, and as we're worshiping God, just ask the Spirit of God to speak to you. Ask the Spirit of God to fill you with His love as we express our love towards Him.